Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And today, I'm going to be talking to you guys all about a flower that truly embodies spring energy. And in some versions of the myth, it's the actual flower that Hades used in his plot to steal Persephone away to the underworld, Daffodil. Ooh, love that. And we actually have a connection to one of my segments today. Yeah. Maybe kind of both, but um, (laughs) I'm going to talk about a very complex and macabre topic, funeral magic, um, and a cautionary tale of the dangers of solipsism, narcissists. So... Yes. And where you guys who are watching on the Patreon might notice, uh, it's very early. This is like a breakfast recording. So a very different. Yeah, so I've yeah, so I've done I've done my little my little wake and bake, my little um, you know, read the news. The only time I look at the news, I've had my little yerba mate. Yum, and yum. I'm feeling good. It's I'm starting, I'm starting a new job today, which is why we're recording so early. Uh, but yeah, enjoy a little daylight. And also, you you might have noticed I'm in my living room today because yeah. my roommate is my roommate is at work. So yeah. I was like, get a little natural light. I'm Beautiful. glowing. Oh my god! You guys might notice there's a bit of a like there's a picture of Nick in my dining room. Uh, love that. What, what a what a great piece of decor that is. Truly one of the most important pieces of artwork that I own. Um, I am in, I'm at my dining room table today because the light comes in from the side window. So yeah, we're in like new locations, new time talking about funerals, talking about funerals. What a great thing to wake up and think about. Okay. So as a follow-up to last week's segment on necromancy, I think it makes a certain logical sense that we should talk about like funerary magic or I think sort of generally speaking, how witches deal with funerals, that that would be a, a, a little different than your classic funeral home slash church slash embalming type American funeral. Um, and actually, I think a good place to start is that dealing with death. Actually, I think a good place to start is that for this episode, we probably should have a couple of trigger warnings. Yeah. Um, we do talk about death a lot, obviously. And um, also uh, sort of later on, some mention of sexual assault. So, you know, if you are not in a place to, to hear about these things, this is not the episode for you. Um, just, you know, skip ahead to the, uh, the part about daffodils. Cause we got some good info in there, but, uh, maybe talking about death isn't for everyone. So just yeah. so you know, we're, yeah, we're- I'll, I'll drop some timestamps in the description. So if you need to skip through the segment, I'll put in a marker. So you know where to go to get to daffodils. Get, yeah. Just get to those daffodils. So, but <laughs> I think a good place to start is that death is such a personal thing because there are so many different beliefs and variations on those beliefs surrounding death that there's really no one-size-fits-all answer. So for a light starter, we're going to talk about our own beliefs and then kind of dig into some historical funeral rites 
And also like, feel free to answer these questions from home too. This would be a great opportunity to reach out on email or Instagram, which are both at wandsandfrondspod, uh, gmail.com or instagram.com slash wandsandfrondspod. So Shannon and myself, um, I thought kind of three questions that would be good for this segment um, is what do you think happens when you die? So you can start and then I... We'll, we'll kind of go back and forth on these questions. Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, so a bit of like personal background that I think is super important here is I dealt with a lot of death very early in my life. Like my dad died, I had a younger sister die. We went through like kind of a extinction period in my family where it was like every year for like, probably like seven or eight years, someone was dying. So I think in a lot of ways that really colored my relationship with death and my personal belief on like what happens when we die. It's kind of like that scientific side of me is like energy is neither created nor destroyed. There's a lot of fucking energy going on and being a human, but I also for a while in college before I changed majors was a philosophy major. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what happens when one dies. Um, So to me, it's like, I believe that the energy doesn't just like disappear. I tend to think that most hauntings are more residual hauntings. So I don't necessarily think that they're like sentient beings, like knocking around weird old buildings. And also I'm like, what a fucking tragic way to spend your afterlife. If that was true. Um, But I think that our spirit just kind of becomes one, right? I don't necessarily think that when I die, I will continue to be like Shannon as I know myself to be. But I do think that the energy of my consciousness will like basically be reabsorbed into the web that like interconnects all living things. Because there is that like essential spark that makes humans humans where we like have this identity, like this sense of self that isn't common among other creatures as far as we know. And so I do think that's important, but I think that that's really, in my personal belief, that sense of self, that understanding of like being sentient is our connection to this like web, right? This like interconnected web that makes like everything what it is. This whole like, we're all kind of one. And so I think when we die, we kind of like just get reabsorbed into the energy of that. And so it's like the things that I think are Shannon could potentially become tiny pieces of lots of different things that are in this like giant web that we exist on. You know, it's kind of like, I feel like it's like ripples in a pond. Yeah. You know, it's like the initial event, you know, the stone dropping into the water is your life. And then then the ripples go out and then eventually the whole pond has moved. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then the ripples are gone. I, I personally, I, so actually, you know, just to kind of get out our poll here, which I did on Instagram last night for all you guys that follow, actually, we did um, end up with more votes for DMT being part of it. And sort of as part of my research for this segment, um, I did listen to another podcast called Close to Death. Uh, and one of the, the things, there was that that he had uh, talked to a death doula. Basically, what she was saying was that her personal belief was that whatever you believe is going to happen does happen. Uh, and just to kind of like take that idea a little further, I, I do feel like DMT is part of it. Um, yeah. You know, there's like a, a scientific consensus that when you die, 
a lot of the chemicals in your brain are very rapidly converted into like a very large amount of DMT. And I think kind of as to what Shannon was saying, it's like that could be sort of like the key that unlocks, you know, perhaps this like quantum transfer of information. If you look at the scientific side of things, it's like information cannot be destroyed. Um, and your brain is like a natural computer. And I feel like, you know, there is something that is very special about consciousness that we really don't understand um, in a scientific way that there, there must be something to this kind of like this transitory state where you're just tripping balls on DMT. So uh, regardless of it, if that's like what gets you to the other side or you know, it, it, it's like, I do feel like there, there's probably an element where it's kind of like lucid dreaming in a way where you're going to see what makes you the most comfortable to move on. But also there's that element of like when you're in a dream within a dream within a dream and time is very weird, like you could theoretically experience like a whole afterlife in a few short minutes while your brain is dying yeah. and it would feel like an eternity to you. Yeah. Time is not real. Like time is very much a human construct. The idea that we're constantly chugging forward. I think that's like a very, very important point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, and, and just to kind of say like, I've done DMT in, Same. <laughs> in, you know, and it's like, I've done what they would call like a breakthrough dose and Actually, you know, I, I feel like there is a lot of like good witchy symbolism in what I saw on my DMT trip. So when I, you know, because some people, they break through on DMT, they see like the machine elves is like a common thing. Um, you know, our friend Igor famously broke through and was presented with gifts yeah um, the biggest fucking Leo energy. Oh my God, the biggest Leo energy. Uh, but so when I broke through, I, I was a tree. I was a tree. Uh, and it was like I was in this sort of an infinite orchard. It was like so well spaced out. It was almost like a grid, you know, like a like a yeah. like a graphing calculator, like a perfect grid. And it was all these other trees. And it was uh, all the trees were made of like purple light. It was like neon out, but like not in glass, you know? just like the glowing purple aura of these trees. And it was, it was so peaceful. Yeah. Just that was, the, I was gonna say that was like a big hallmark of my DMT trip too, was the peacefulness of it. Yeah. It's like, it was just really chill. There was this feeling of connection and just just quiet, you know, it's like my, yeah. it's, it was, it was very nice. I think, especially when you think about other hallucinogens, that's a very specific thing to DMT that I found is that I, there was no anxiety. Cause for yeah. me, it was like, I was walking down like what looked like the neighborhood street of where I was, but everything was just like light points, like glittery is the best way I can think to describe it. But it was like just walking through and like everything that existed was just made of light and just like walking through it and being a part of it. But it wasn't, yeah, it like wasn't scary. Like there were times when I've done like psilocybin and like LSD where I have been fucking freaked out Yeah, and I've never experienced that with DMT. It's always been very like 
<sighs> which is also to me like very comforting thinking yes. about like yeah. the fact that like so many people in science are like yeah when you die your brain definitely releases a fuck ton of dmt it was so comforting and like i i do for the anxiety like the deeply seated anxiety I've always dealt with that I think is one of the most like comforting drug experiences I've ever had because it took a lot of fear of death out of it because it was like, Oh yes. Because you're like, Oh, I could handle that. I could deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. Might even be kind of fun. Yeah. It's like a good transition, but yeah, I think on the poll, I, cause I know reincarnation was one of the options. And I think the way that I envision like this web of interconnectedness is that like, I think that parts of me will obviously be in re- be reincarnated. I just don't know that I'll necessarily be like the Shannon at the core of that. Because to me, one of the things when I'm doing like meditation and like there are meditations that ask you to like call in parts of yourself from other re- realms. And to me, I've always had a really strong sense of like being able to do that. Like I feel like I'm able when I get into like a meditative state to reach out and touch other pieces of me. And I'm like, I don't know who I was before. And like, but some of the pieces ended up here. And what is me Some now? of them ended up here, yeah. So, okay, moving on to this second question. Yeah. I think, I think this is an important one too when you're thinking about death is that like, how would you want your funeral to be generally speaking? And I'm like, how do you think that that ties into your, your beliefs about death? Yeah. So like, yeah. yeah. So like, just, I, I, I'll go first on this one. Like I personally if it was an option, would want a natural style burial. And also on the same podcast, they were, they talked to a guy who ran a green cemetery. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot just go to any old cemetery and be like, I don't want to be embalmed. I don't want to be in a casket. I want to be buried and have a tree planted over me. A beautiful idea. And really something that I would go for Again, assuming it was an option at the time of my passing, uh, but you do actually, you have to go, you either have to know someone who owns land and is willing to certify at least a portion of that land as a cemetery, which not, obviously not everyone would have access to. Um, and then you, you can pretty much do whatever you want after that. Or you can go to a place like a green cemetery where the whole thing is that someone's already done that. Um, and, you know, they're kind of letting other people in on it. And and I just, I think that's a really nice idea. You know, they've got, you can get that kind of, it's like a ball of dirt, basically with your body in it. And they grow a tree out of it, um, kind of like a pre-packaged kind of a deal. But, you know, it's like, honestly, I would be very happy to just be chucked in a hole and have like a nice tree planted over me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, there's this company I was just looking at because I was like, what are they called? So there's one of the co- companies that I've looked at, it's called Capsula Mundi. And it's like kind of a similar thing is they bury you in like basically a biodegradable pod with a tree yeah. planted in you. Because to me, I, especially because I do believe like this is all interconnected. It's like, I can't think of anything worse than being like embalmed and like all of my energy and stuff, not being allowed to like reintegrate with the earth. Like that to me is much scarier than anything else like related to dying. It's like the idea that like all of me is going to be fucking like preserved 
Like, yeah. no, thank you. No, thank you. I want to like be turned into a tree or cremated. Like if that's not an option, like green burial in California is super common, fortunately, like, because, you know, we've got a lot of hippy dippy stuff in Northern California too, and a lot more land than people realize. Right. Um, so green burial is very much like top of the list for me because like I've been to some bad funerals. Like my grandfather, when he died was cremated and put into a Build-A-Bear which at the time I think made some sense, but then became very weird as yeah, I got older. I, I actually, you know, when I lived with you, I, I do remember being like, I, you know, like I picked it up one time and I was like, Jesus Christ, this is fucking heavy. And you're like, oh yeah, that's my grandpa's ashes. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you're like, cool, that's not weird at all. Just sitting on the bed. <laughs> just just sitting there. Uh, but I, you know, it's like, it was kind it was kind of a cute thing like i the build a bear was like wearing like plumbing a plumber's outfit yeah which was it was cool i mean you know like not the way i would do it i think i would want to be in like i you know i it's like if i was going to do cremation i think i would want to be in like a fancy urn you know so mm-hmm. like i could be like a centerpiece at a dinner party for for you know the rest of time um I love that. I think for me, the idea of keeping a body, just as someone who had so many people like in my very near family pass away when I was young, um, I never wanted my loved ones to have this like weird sense of like guilt for not going to visit my body somewhere because that's such a thing that I remember growing up. It's like, if I ever went home and didn't go to my dad's grave, it was like, oh shit, I'm a horrible like daughter. And so I like the idea of like becoming a tree or being cremated and then just like fucking get rid of me. Like don't, nobody hold on to me. Like when you want to think about me, just think about me. But like, you know, this, the sense of like, you're just the requirement and like all of the like guilt that gets wrapped up in like the ongoing process of like experiencing the death of someone you love. I just don't want to continue to re-traumatize people. Yeah. And I feel like there's also this, it's like you feel bad for not going, but there's really like nothing to do at a cemetery. No, other than like dust the gravestone. Yeah. It's like, you know, and it's like, uh, honestly, I feel like if that's like culturally important to you, like as a respect thing, like, by all means, like, I'm not shitting on the idea. No, 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 not at all. But it's like, you know, so most recently in my family, my grandma passed away last March. And it was, you know, it was sad. But, but one thing I do think about with that is that, you know, her and my grandpa who passed when I was like, less than two years old. So I like, I never really met him. Um, but they had decided, I guess, a long time ago to, to get their burial plots in their hometown, which is like, you know, where they had met and all of that. But it's like basically in Oklahoma. And it really actually kind of makes me sad because it's like, I'm, I'm not going to go out there. Like, I mean, I'll probably go, you know, like if my mom wants to go, I would go with her. But, you know, it's like. I, I respect the memory of my grandmother and like we were close and it's like nothing to do with that really. It's just like, there's, I'm not going to go up there. There's nothing up there. There's nothing else up there. And it's like, it's just not, it's so out of the way. And it's like, I do kind of feel bad. So it's like, I wouldn't want to put someone through that. But I, I think also kind of the point of this question too, is like, 
not even like how would you want your your burial to be it's like how would you want your funeral to be because that's something that I think is always disappointing as like you know just like a a Texan boy who was raised in a very Christian environment Uh, even though my parents themselves are are both kind of famously like not religious um or like they're both kind of like the least religious people in their family like they just kind of have both let the religion stuff slide but everyone else in my family basically is christian and it's like i hate a christian funeral yeah i hate a christian funeral like you know it's 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 sad but i I also kind of hate the idea of like like doing it all at a funeral home and like you basically you have like a time slot and they're like trying to rush you and your flowers out of the room and it's you know it's like it's it's just it's not pretty I I personally I feel like I would I would rather have like a wake oh yeah 100 percent have a fucking party like have a party but like also kind of more importantly like nothing formal like I hate this you know it's like like it's not a suit and tie occasion I feel like there should be finger foods I feel like there should be a good playlist no one likes to cry uncontrollably in formal wear no it's like Like, wear wear some fucking sweatpants like like, wear what you're comfy in wear what you're comfy in and like be sad like drink some fucking whiskey cry it out you know like it, it, it should be a party, but it's like, I don't mind if people are sad. Yeah. You know? I'd hope that someone's sad when I, I hope that, I hope that someone's sad, TBH, but it's like, it's like you kind of want that, the time, like you just want the yeah. time. And it is, it's it, good closure. It's good closure. Um, you know, it, and it's like, I, I feel like culturally, like we're just so uncomfortable with death where it's like, you don't even really get to mourn at a funeral because you're like you you almost are like I have to hold it together it's so performative and I've been through some bad funerals I'm very much like on the same page though for me it's like when I die it's very important to me that like the people that I love have a chance to get together I don't want anybody to have to fucking put on pantyhose it's like I want everybody to get together to eat a bunch of really good comfort food to drink to smoke, to do whatever they need, to cry, but also to like talk about the good stuff because, you know, as time has passed is like my favorite thing to do is to like remember people like my grandfather or like my dad by like talking about funny memories about them. And it's like, I kind of want to have like, this is such a fucking Virgo thing, but it's like, I want to have like fun, like little conversation prompts for like my wake party to be like, what's your favorite stupid memory of Shannon? Like, what's your favorite memory of a time that Shannon fell and hurt herself? Because everyone who knows me has one, you know, it's like, I want people to like, of course be sad, but also I do want it to be a celebration because when someone has lived a life that has touched people to the point that like, they want to show up to celebrate you once you're gone, like, that's fucking awesome. Like, that's a cool thing. Like that should be honored. And like the only way to deal with death is to like incorporate like the good and the bad. It's like, it's sad that they're gone, but you also get to like celebrate that you knew this person. And I, I want that when I die. Yeah. And it's, I I think it's more personal. I also hate religious funerals because it's always like a prompt for them to be like, 
come on down and get saved. It was their, yeah. it was their wish, you know, that blah, 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 be a Christian. Now's the time. And it's like, I, so we've literally spent an hour talking about how we should convert to your religion. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, that's not, I don't, you know, I don't really care for it. Yeah, there's yeah. witchy, there's witchy stuff that's important to me, but I want a fucking secular wake because I yeah. want everyone to come and feel welcome and able to celebrate and take part. Like I don't want there to be any sort of gatekeeping because you're not a part of the club. Well, I feel like I and you know, it's kind of like good news there because like a proper sort of I and you know, I kind of looked at Wicca as as just kind of like just to get the pulse of the witchy yeah. community. Um, which I know a lot of people are are gonna have differing opinions, but basically I think what's what's important in that religious aspect of it really is kind of like doing the natural burial or you know, like getting cremated. It's you don't want to be separate from nature. Like you want to kind of go back into the earth. And I think, I think that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. And I think, you know, if that's sort of already included in your plans, you don't have to make like a huge ritual out of it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's sort of my take on, on what I've read. So sort of the last question here, because this is one of those things where it's like a lot of the different yeah. organized religions are divided, but uh, if you could what would you take with you from this life into the next life? I mean, for me, it's really simple. It's like the love for the people that mean something to me. Like Like your memories. Yeah. It's like, I just, the people that I care about, like I have people in my life that are so deeply important to me more than anything in the world. It's like, because of the way that I conceptualize death and I, I believe that I'm going to be, you know, disseminated throughout the universe into like pieces of my consciousness that end up in places. I'd love to be able to take like that imprint of like the people that I care deeply about, because that's to me, the most important thing is like the people that you love and you can't take anything with you. But if I could take like that little piece that just like little imprint of all the important people to me, that would be really special. I I like that answer. Um, I was going to say, if there was an afterlife, I, I hope that I can meet my pets. Oh my God, from, yeah. From throughout my life. Um, I think that would be really special. It's, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's like, I, I feel like if there's an afterlife, like obviously you're gonna, you're, you know, hopefully you can see the people that you knew in some form or another there. But it's kind of like I would hope that I could see all of my my animal friends from from my life as well. Yeah, uh, that would be I think very special. Um, and okay, so before we move on, I did want to also just kind of give like the results of my straw poll, and then we're just going to dig in a little a little bit deeper um, and kind of finish up this segment. So I did a little poll on Instagram. So. From the people that voted, we had 86% voting for reincarnation over an afterlife, um, which I think tracks. 75% of the voters voted for DMT being part of it. 
um, with 25% voting that it was Joe Rogan nonsense. And uh, for plans, um, we had 83% for cremation and only 17% for burial. So I think the Wands and Fronds audience that did vote, we have some very strong opinions going either way. Um, so I think it's sort of important here to look at sort of like the key differences of opinion that exist in the history of death as a ritual. So like if we look at the Fertile Crescent and Mesopotamia, we see uh, people that take a sort of egalitarian view of death where everyone goes to the same afterlife and has the same status and all people do get buried in the ground. They believe that the underworld is underground. And, but everyone has similar funeral rites. And what differentiated the lower classes from the ruling classes as far as getting buried and having an afterlife was the amount of offerings and libations that were devoted to the deceased. And this would kind of like set your social status in the afterlife. So if you really wanted someone to do well in the afterlife, or you were told to by the, the local government, um, then, you know, like that would pass along to them. But for your sort of regular people, you know, if they were really, really beloved, they could potentially have this higher status in the afterlife if a lot of people sort of came out and, and did these offerings, did these libations. Uh, it was said in the Mesopotamian underworld that the food is, is tasteless and bland and the water is salty. So these offerings really kind of are like currency. It's almost like being in jail. Yeah, I was like, um, I am not interested in that version of the afterlife. Okay, thanks. I don't want to be fucking one of the ghosts at Hogwarts that has to like fly through rotted food to get a little bit of a thrill. A little, a like, little, a, a little taste, a little yeah. taste. Um, and of course, that you know is is kind of like um, like a great leveling effect, like people having the same afterlife. And then if we look at Egypt, they have this very complex set of beliefs surrounding death and it's very stratified by class you know it's sort of the other side of the coin um they do have this very elaborate caste system for living people and it does sort of directly carry over into the afterlife and the elites are prepared and mummified they're in tombs full of supplies to not only help them succeed in the afterlife, but like help them get to like their specific afterlife, um, which is more difficult. You know, that's kind of like the trade-off here is like, if you're the Pharaoh, you have to like fight your way through this like obstacle course of death to eventually get to the afterlife. Whereas for normal people, it's, you know, you kind of, you just, you're dead, you go. Um, and it was this very lavish way to go if you were in the right social class. And otherwise, you know, it was just business as usual. Um, and then you have ancient Israel uh, and like the, the old, old school of Jewish mysticism. Uh, and you're like, don't catch me complimenting Judeo-Christian anything, but historically, Jewish people do not believe in heaven or hell. 
Uh, they believe that the dead entered like a permanent dreamless sleep, which actually doesn't sound that bad. Um, and I like this view culturally because it does take the focus off of this sort of reward of heaven and instead has people focus on living a good life, uh, not preparing for a good death. Yeah, um, it's like taking the moral dessert out of the equation of Christianity, which has like honestly been fucking horrible culturally because a bunch of fucking evangelicals don't give a shit what happens now. They're like, oh, fuck it, climate change, it's fine. We're all doing good, so we'll go to heaven when we die. And it's right. like, um, wait a minute, but like, we're all here. <laughs> like, we're all here right now. Right, like we could do some good here. And they also, uh, the, you know, the old Jewish kingdom um, death culture, I guess, was also focused on like what you could do for the community while you're here. Like it's all, you know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's all kind of tied up together. And I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with like, you know, like climate deniers and like all of these just horrible conservative Christian people who are really like just waiting for their, their dessert, their, their moral dessert. And it's, it's terrible, but let's, let's look at some pagan death. Um, so like in Greece and Rome, people widely believed in Hades, Sharon and the River Styx, um, or, you know, the Roman equivalents. Uh, and so it was paramount, it was of paramount importance that the deceased, at the very least, had their toll for the ferryman. This was like the, the big thing. Um, so this would take the form of a coin either placed under the tongue and or right over the eye. Um, <laughs> and Anything beyond that would have varied quite a bit based on class, your family's personal customs, and the era in which you died. And so generally speaking, when the military was in charge of things, uh, minimalism was the name of the game. And the same was true during periods that were more democratic uh, in the government system, because they really wanted to differentiate between the aristocratic way of ruling where they have these lavish burials uh, that set them apart from the common people and sort of these minimalist burials or cremations that, you know, sort of say that we are the same as you, we are the same as the common people. Um, and so, you know, sort of these bureaucratic, democratically elected leaders would tone it down. Um, and one thing that was big in both ancient Greece and Rome was the idea of lying in state for a certain period of mourning and preparation. Uh, and this is not unique to them, but this is sort of a time when that custom peaks. Uh, so basically the idea of lying in state is that your body is laid out, you know, sort of on a comfy piece of furniture or even in, in your bed that you slept in, uh, and it's people can come visit your actual body. And they would do this sometimes for three days, sometimes for eight days. Uh, that's another thing that kind of was in flux uh, and, and did depend on sort of what your family wanted. But um, yeah, you know, so it's like they would leave the body out for people to go visit for multiple days. 
Uh, and I think that's kind of cool because, you know, it's like I said, with the, with the traditional funeral where it's like, you know, they're kind of rushing you out the door. Uh, you, you kind of have a couple days to have people just kind of filter through and say, Hey, you know, bring over a dish or, a, you know, some wine or, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. It's um, spread out over, yeah. over like a week instead of just doing everything or trying to do everything in like one or two days. Um, and, you know, you, during this period, the body would be shrouded. Death shrouding is very much a thing in, in Greece and Rome. Uh, and, you know, they want you to be comfy and they do sort of, they would put flowers around, uh, mainly for smell, but we do kind of like hold on to that with like lilies and roses and stuff. Yeah. Human bodies, unfortunately, begin to decompose pretty immediately. So yeah. an, um, uh, odor control is very important in this practice. Odor control, super important. It's also, I mean, it's like, I think this is one of the ways where it does get a little witchy and it's like, um, sometimes they would use like rosemary. Rosemary is a good one. Like lilies have that white color for purity, but also they do have a smell that's good for covering up uh, that, that tinge, that tinge of death. Um, but it should be noted that during this sort of Greco-Roman era uh, in history, cremation and ground burial kind of go back and forth in popularity. Um, and, you know, that's that's still to this day, like kind of the big choice that people yeah. have. It's like, do you want to get buried? Do you want to get cremated? Obviously, the people who voted vary in favor of cremation. But like, meanwhile, in other parts of Europe. So in Germany and France, we have the Celts, um, like the old, old, old Celts, you know, before they were just in, in Ireland and the UK, when it was kind of like the pan-Celtic not really empire, but you know, because it was all separate the kings. Presence. But, <laughs> but they were, but they were really spread out. And yeah. um, they would do something that I think is cool and is like vaguely reminiscent of a Viking funeral, which we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, the the wagon, the wagon burial, which is neat. So they would put a body in a wagon or a chariot. Uh, and they would load it up with things that they could use in the afterlife, tools, uh, dishes. Feasting is apparently a big part of the Celtic afterlife. Um, in uh, one princely tomb, they had uh, table settings for nine people. Nice. Three by three. Three by three. And, uh, but also, you know, kind of the idea that you would need all of this stuff. So they would load up this wagon and they would load you up with, with feasting supplies and wine and honey and just all of these. Uh, it's a lot of food. It's, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny because it's like a lot of food going into this, but, but uh, you know, you were ready for a feast and you were wearing your nicest clothes and you were wearing your best jewelry. And it was like, you are on your way like we're gonna set you up very well, but also the, this I like the idea with the wagon and the chariot that it's gonna be a journey. Yeah, and then they would bury the whole wagon, so that's kind of cool. Like they would bury it in the ground, and so that's why 
when they do find these burial sites, it's like wagon wheels and uh, dishes mainly, which is cool. Um, and then that kind of idea that you you can take it with you also carries over into Norse religions where they believed, you know, obviously everyone knows the Viking funeral, you're, which was, to be fair, really reserved for, for like chiefs, chieftains, yeah. kings, lords, you, you know, your, your regular people in the, that living under the Norse pantheon uh, were probably more likely to be like devotees of Frey and Freya and we're most likely sort of looking forward to the agrarian afterlife, um, which is, you know, kind of like you're a farmer forever. <laughs> hey, I guess there are worse ways to spend eternity. Right. But, you know, the, the Viking burial of like a chief or a king where they would load up this boat with furs and they would put your pets on there and they would, you know, sometimes even put your, your best lady on the boat with you. Uh, Whether which, or not she's dead. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that kind of does murder resemble, um, you know, the, the, the Hindu practice of sati, which has been illegal since 1979, but you do still see videos of it out of like very rural parts of South Asia, um, and that terrifying because, and actually, you know, since this is kind of like the death segment, I, I, I have seen this video where the, the woman does not want to be burned on the, the funeral pyre and, and they're pushing her back in with, with these long sticks and it's just horrifying. Like, yeah. can you imagine doing that to another living person? Like, that's, no. uh, that's murder. It's that's murder. Mu that's murder. But no. So kind of, whoop, let's go back. Let's go back to Europe. Um, sort of this idea that you can take it with you is very prevalent in these, like, northern pagan communities. And so even for, like, a common burial, they would give you some stuff. You would take some stuff into the grave with you to prepare you for the afterlife. Um, which kind of brings me up to sort of like what modern pagans do for funerals, which I already kind of touched on, where it's like a natural burial is best. You want your energy to return to the earth uh, symbolically, but also like really, though, you would you want that energy to not be wasted. And also this this sort of Wiccan idea that I think is cool and kind of like plays nicely with reincarnation uh, the, the Summerlands or the Isle of Apples, which is where it's sort of like the transitory space between lives. So this sort of idea that there's not really an afterlife, but there's kind of a between life. The pre-womb lounge. The pre-womb <laughs> lounge, that's right. And so you sort of like join up with all of your other reincarnations from the past, uh, and as this sort of amalgamated entity, choose, you know, sort of what lessons you need to learn in your next lifetime and move on. And I think I really, any sort of ritual that we as witches do to either do our own mourning or, you know, 
even sort of have planned out for our own funeral, I think really is just to have the person be comfortable enough to move on. Yeah. And like, that's really, that's really what we would want. And to, you know, to, to kind of not feel stuck in that space or to be looking back at this lifetime with regret or, you know, it's, it, it's like, you, you want them to move on. You want them to move on. I feel like to me, just as like a note, that's part of, I think, also the responsibility of the living is to like, not only do the right things, but also to like help you like get yourself emotionally able to let people go because like, you don't want to continue to be clawing on to people and preventing them from moving on either. Right. And I feel like this, this time, this time around death is probably like a good time to do maybe like a modified cord cutting. Yeah. Where it's like, you're not like banishing this person. No, but you're let, you're releasing them. But you do, you want to release the attachment because you want them to be able to move on. Uh, I also feel like just kind of looking at like what we can do as witches around this time I feel like this is also like a good time for like a sweetening jar. We've talked about doing that yeah. when you have your family over for the holidays. But I mean, this is so much more serious than having your family over for the holidays and people yeah. do get really weird around death. Yeah. Uh, people, tensions are at their highest. Tensions are absolutely at their highest. I mean, this is also the time when, when secrets come out. Um, yeah, you I know, definitely had like a great, not a great uncle. He was like my second cousin. He's like one of those like uncles that's like technically a cousin. And when like he an, got like an uncle because they're the age of an uncle. Yeah. But there was definitely like a second family found. Yeah. And that's never great. It's not, you know, and so like I feel like sweetening jars are good. I feel like there is a lot of power in imagery. Two, I feel like, you know, pictures, recordings, videos, um, all take on like a much greater emotional significance at this time. Yeah. And really just like being careful with the energy. Um, you know, it's like either putting that kind of stuff away or like respect being respectful. Of, yeah. of the of the images and recordings of a deceased person, um, and you know, I also kind of feel like in this time of mourning, uh, there's also kind of this this feeling that that maybe you want like a memento of the deceased person. I personally feel like I would be okay with people, you know, having like a totem in remembrance of me. You know, yeah. like like a special, you know, like a special picture or, you know, like a, like an item of mine, you know, it's like, I, I feel like it's kind of like take what you want, but I think that's, that's a very special way to remember people, you know, either through like a, an important item to them or a book that, you know, they loved yeah. or, you know, like handwritten notes and stuff. Like, I, I think that is, is okay as long as you were not using that a, as a way to keep that attachment. 
like we had yeah. said, like the idea is you want people to be able to move on, but you also want these mementos. And I think kind of navigating that with, with respect and intention. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, it's like, I'm cool with it. Yeah. Um, I have, I've always said, I'm like, when I'm not here, like do what you want with my shit, but also like, don't be weird about it. Like, don't be weird about it yeah. i do i have to say on that note when eric's great grandmother eric's nana died a few years ago we found this vendor and i just looked it up it's ph pottery on etsy and she does um custom like pottery gifts and oh you can't really see it but we had these like handwritten recipe cards from nana and we this woman takes them and puts them on new pottery and so we had like nana's recipe for yeast rolls put on big dinner plates. And I feel like something like that is a really great way to continue to remember them, to keep it alive. But then also something that I would hope people would do is like taking it into the creation of new memories. It's like this, it's like taking pieces of that person, but continuing to incorporate it as your life moves forward instead of using it as like a way to stay anchored in the past. Yeah, Exactly. And I love that idea of doing it as like dinner plates because then, yeah. you know, it's like, that's kind of something special you can get out in the future. Yeah. One of the last things I wanted to talk about was that kind of circling around to, to pets and familiars. Yeah. Um, we were actually talking about this the other day and I personally feel like I would want to cremate my pets if that's an option. Yeah. Um, you know, I just feel like as, as an apartment dweller, especially it's like, you know, I, I, I do want to have that little memento and, you know, not get stuck, you know, like, like having to go visit the gravesite or something. And it's like, I don't have a yard to bury them in. And I, I would, to I would totally keep like a little box with Faye or, or Oliver. In, yeah. When Ivan it. passed, we, um, he was cremated and we didn't get the cremains, but we, have like this uh the the vet we work with had this like service where we have a clay paw print of his that they took and so I have a little like disc that has Ivan's paw print in it that's actually on my altar yeah and I feel like you know like kind of rounding out this segment I do feel like there is room in modern witchy culture to sort of embrace death more I feel like we do we kind of have these same pitfalls as more traditional religious people where it's like, you know, there, there's, there's that discomfort and it's like, I feel like mourning should be a much more open process. And it's like, there should be more active mourning. Um, you know, it's like the other day me and Callie had gone out and we were just talking about a, a friend of ours who had passed and it just felt so weird to be in public having this conversation and, and we were, we were crying having this discussion, but I feel like, you know, that there needs to be a cultural shakeup. Like everyone's going to die. Like I'm going to die. You're going to die. Like everyone, you know, and love is going to die. So we should really work on changing the narrative of it being such a taboo thing is yeah. is my is my personal opinion and i think yeah. something that we could embrace culturally as witches and kind of like set that example really for other people to like have this this openness about it or or strive yeah. to have this kind of openness <laughs> about it no i agree i think that 
death is what makes life so sweet, right? If it never ended, what would be the point of anything? Also, I mean, I, that's kind of like, I don't like the idea of like an eternal afterlife. No, that sounds exhausting. It sounds exhausting. Like, I feel like I would get bored. Yeah. It's like, you know, if it's an option, if it's an optional thing, like, let me get back in there. Like, let me live. Because like being in like stasis, like this, I don't know, it's like stasis, right? Where it's like, if nothing bad ever happens and you're just like in heaven, like, what's the angle? Like, where's the interest? Where's the intrigue? I I just feel like I'd be bored out of my mind. Totally. Yeah, I agree. I think that the idea of embracing death is to like embrace the impermanence of everything. And I think the wonderful thing about that is it just makes you more appreciative for what you have for the time that we are here. And I do think this idea that like the stiff upper lip thing that we inherited from the Brits is not helpful. It's, it's not, you know, it's like, and it's like, it it doesn't help people to move on to kind of hold Mm -hmm. that stuff in. Like what's going to help you move on mourning. Yeah. You need to mourn people when you lose them. Yeah. And, and it's like, you know, it's, it's not about wearing black. You know, it's like cry, cry it out. Yeah. And there's no time limit on it. I also feel like that's the thing that's very cultural is like, we don't, we expect people to be over it at a certain amount of time. And it's like, no, you know, there are some days where I still will like cry because I like miss my dad or I miss my grandfather. And it's like, my dad's been dead for 20 years but it doesn't mean that I don't have days where I just like really miss him. And that shouldn't be weird. Like culturally, I do feel like there's just such this idea that like, there's like an expiration date on it being socially acceptable for you to mourn. And it's like, no, man, you get to like do that. However it works for you. Live your yeah. life. Live your life. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's like with, uh, with mama, you know, it's like, I, I just, I really disliked the way it was all handled because there was this kind of like hold it in mentality for everyone. And it's just like, it also just doesn't reflect like who you are as a person. No. You know, it's like, it's like, it could be a funeral for anyone. And it's like, you know, if you don't, if you're uncomfortable talking about it to such an extent, like that's how you end up with a funeral like that. And it's like, I don't want that. So I don't know. Food for thought. I mean, this is such a broad subject that I really feel like this is a good place to stop. Yeah, Um, I agree. But, you know, it's like this could even be there could even be like a part two of of talking about like death and its relationship to the craft and like to our more pagan beliefs. But that's not today. Let's not talk today. about flowers. Let's, Let's talk about, talk about flowers. Nice. Before we move on, I did want to show my Necromancer, my Raised Dead Cats Back to Life shirt that I'm wearing in honor of the Necromancy episode. So anyway, I just had to plug that real quick. So as I mentioned up top, uh, before we had our fey break, uh, <laughs> there are some versions of the myth where Hades uses a daffodil to distract Persephone so he can like, kidnap her and bring her to the under the underworld but daffodils show up in other greek myths as well in fact daffodils belong to the genus narcissus so 
bit of foreshadowing, but Nick's going to be talking about that legend later. So I'm not wanting, I don't want to give away too much on that front, but in the Victorian language of flowers, daffodils represent love, which tracks because they have like, they're some of the first flowers to bloom in the spring and they have a really strong tide of fertility and like nothing says love like reproduction. Am I right? Mm, sexy. Uh, sexy little flowers. And I do love them. Like daffodils are truly a welcome sight for most people. Uh, as the winter frost is like just starting to thaw, these bright, happy little flowers pop up as a sign that the end of the frigid despair of winter is finally nigh, right? Daffodils are in the Amaryllis family or Amaryllidaceae. They are a hardy and relatively easygoing perennial that'll grow in most regions in North America. They are native to Southern Europe, those idyllic like meadows and wooded areas that are like straight out of fairy tales. There is actually a center of diversity though in the Western Mediterranean and specifically the Iberian Peninsula. So if you wanna go get your daffodil like tourism on, Iberian Peninsula where it's at. I do want to smugly point out that daffodils won't do well in really hot and wet areas like Florida and pretty much every plant that we grow loves Florida's tropical weather. So I just wanted to gloat for a moment that there is at least one flower that the rest of us could do a better job of growing than Florida. Take that. Um, so these plants, <laughs> I know. I'm just being a bitch. Uh, these plants have been cultivated for just about as long as people have been growing flowers, but they really like hit their stride in Europe after the 16th century. The traditional species are yellow or white um, with either like uniform or contrasting tepals and corona. They have like six petals and a trumpet shaped central corona there. So you can imagine like the contrasting ones are the like the daffodils that have like the white flowers and the yellow cup in the center. I think those are a pretty typical one that you can imagine. That species, by the way, is called Narcissus poeticus, the ones that have the white petals and the yellow cup, which I just love. So let's talk about how to grow these though, right? Like I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but here I am. You have to plant daffodils in the fall. It's too late. We're sadly too late to the game if you want to get them in your garden for this spring, but earmark this episode, come back if you want to plant some later in the year so you have them next spring. You need to get the bulbs in the ground like two weeks to about a month before the ground freezes over if you live somewhere where that happens. And when you're looking to buy your bulbs, you want something that's not like totally shriveled. Like we've all seen that display at the hardware store with like the sad, grotesque looking like shrunken head bulbs those aren't where it's at. Uh, the bigger, the better, very American rule when sourcing your bulbs. And you do want them to like have a little bit of a um, plumpness still. You don't want them totally dried out. So most varieties when you're getting ready to plant are going to tolerate a wide range of soils. The vast majority of them though will thrive in like moderately fertile, well-draining soil. They're susceptible to root rot, like basically every plant. So you want to keep things moist during growing season, but you don't want to drown them. Some of the more popular species do prefer like neutral to acidic soils, but there are even some that'll do best in like alkaline soils. And that's the problem when we're talking about like a very broad type of flower, right? To determine the need for your particular flowers, you need to like check out the supplier's recommendations because your species might have its own little quirks. So you've got your like juicy, big old American boy bulbs, right? When you plant them, you wanna make sure the pointy end is pointed up and they should be planted two to three times as deep as the bulb is tall. So if you have like, 
a little two inch bulb, you're going to want like four to six inches of soil on top of it. But a very important note, if you live somewhere that has really harsh winters, you need to make sure there are at least three inches of soil on top of the bulb, no matter what, to keep it from frost burn. So just like little note, they can handle a little crowding, but they're happiest with around like three to six inches between the bulbs. They like a little bit of space. You know, you can sprinkle a bit of bulb fertilizer in the hole during planting, but honestly, if you've got decent soil, it's not entirely necessary. And I'm not someone that's going to recommend you pick up like specialty fertilizer for everything that you grow. So if you've got good soil, you're going to be fine. They will of course prefer full sun, their flowers, but they'll manage in some dappled shade, especially if you live in a hotter area. And these are great flowers for like filling in the gaps between shrubs or even using as like a border. And you know, if you don't have outdoor space, you can force blooms indoors if that's your jam too. And I know some like gardeners will literally plant hundreds of daffodil uh, bulbs and they do make perfect cut flowers for springtime. So I totally get it. And over time, the daffodils develop um, daughter bulbs, which are basically like new bulbs attached to like the originally planted mother bulb. And that's a great way to like grow your bulb collection over the years, or even like sharing them with your plant lover friends is like such a good gift. Um, like how cute would that be to give someone for like their birthday daffodil bulbs? I, I feel like that's such an, such an old lady thing too. Like, I feel like, you know, kind of speaking of my grandma definitely had some daffodils that were gifted by my great aunt because she had like redone her flower beds and was like, I have way too many daffodil bulbs. Here you go. (laughs) I love Um, that. I love that. Um, You'll want to use if you, once you are fertilizing, once flowering starts, if you're not getting like quite the blooms you were hoping for, you're going to want to look for a formula that has a higher potassium and like a lower nitrogen in it. Um, so that's going to be like a smaller first number and a larger third number in the NPK lineup. So that's like, again, like up, down, all around, you're looking for that bigger third number for flowering things. Because if you have something that has too big of a first number, you're going to get like beautiful foliage, but that's not really about blooms. So as you're, I know. So as your flowers are fading, you're going to want to deadhead them to keep your garden looking tidy but you need to make sure that the leaves remain on the bulb for at least six weeks, because even if there aren't flowers, the greens are helping like store and collect enough energy and nutrients for the bulbs for the coming year. So you can, once they've like totally died off, you really do want to like let as much absorb from the leaves as possible. You can either like twist the leaves and like pull them away when they're dead or like snip off the dead plants at the base. But once that's done, like you don't have to dig up your bulbs every year. You can just like cover them with like some bone meal to get them ready for next year's display. If you're a renter and you do have to like dig things up, you're going to like pull them up at that point, let them like stay in a cool, moist environment in like a basement somewhere dark and like where it's not going to get totally, you know, like, like your, your old fashioned root cellar. Yeah, exactly. A root cellar. And I know some people that are renters, like with bulbs will even just like keep them in a pot of soil, like in their garage or something. So, you know, you can pull them up, but you don't have to. Uh, Some really good news though, for people that are, you know, growing plants outdoors, daffodils are both deer resistant and rodent proof. Fuck you squirrels. Uh, The bad news there though, means that they're also toxic to pets. So they're not the best choice if you have creatures that you uh, have 
a soft spot in your heart for that like to nibble on things in your garden. Um, for me, half the squirrels in Park La Brea would die and I could die. And I'd say fucking good riddance. But Felix, the old black cat that's around out there, I would die if something happened to him. So balance, guys. When you do want to get these for bouquets, um, they have a really interesting quirk that you need to get keep in mind, though. So like you're growing your daffodils. You're like, oh, these are so pretty. I want to pull these out and put them in a flower arrangement. Not so fast. Their stems actually secrete a fluid that causes other flowers to wilt. So they're best in their own bouquets. But if you really do want to like create an arrangement with other flowers um, for like an event or a dinner party or something, like you need to try and let the daffodils soak as long as possible in their own water, rinse them really well, like pour out that water, put them in a fresh container with new water and add them to the arrangement last. So just like, it's a very specific thing for daffodils. On that end, I was like, if you wanted to do dark and twisty magic, I could imagine doing something with daffodils and other flowers, but we don't tend to do that here. Um, so I do want to add, there have historically been attempts to use daffodils medicinally, but they're toxic. Just biting down on a stem can cause fainting. So like, don't. Traditionally, the uses have been for things like inducing vomiting or creating a poultice for burns and wounds, sometimes even using the bulb. But like, again, ingestion can prove fatal. So we're not we're not going to talk about it. I don't want you guys to die. Um, on that note, though, I would say this is a really good candidate for making a flower essence, which I could imagine using if you're someone who struggles with like anxiety and depression. Like I know a lot of folks, myself included, can have a really tough time during the winter. I love the idea of making a flower essence um, and then saving that essence for like the depths of the following winter to help give you a little lift. And to preserve your flower essences, you can either add liquor, like add like bourbon or something, or you could do just like with water and freeze it into ice cubes to make yourself like a little iced bevy come January when you're really down on the dumps. I would say this will be most potent if you do it under like a full moon in Taurus or Libra. Making it under a Libra full moon, I think would be excellent if you wanted to use the essence in love or fertility magic as well. So on that note, let's talk about magic. Daffodils are a feminine plant associated with the planet Venus, which is where that uh, the Taurus and Libra suggestions came in, and the water element. So most commonly, unsurprisingly, you'll see these used in love and fertility magic, but they do also have really strong associations with luck. And because of the association with Hades, some folks also use them in funeral arrangements. Heyo, another oh, time. What? I know. One of the easiest ways, though, to use daffodils in your practice is by placing some of the flowers on your altar. And folklore says that wearing a daffodil close to your heart can bring good luck. And of course, because I'm on an embroidery kick, I have to suggest embroidering a daffodil on your breast pocket for that purpose, perhaps. How cute would that be? Um, <laughs> the Greenwich Oracle Guidebook, though, by Cheryl and Darcy includes a really great spell suggestion that I want to share with you all today um, using daffodils. So this is a hope spell for when you're going through like a really challenging time. Like we've all been in those spots where you're just like, oh my God, everything is fucking against me. What's happening? And this is a week long spell. So I think it's a really good long ritual to help you get out of that rut. So you start by taking seven daffodils 
putting like cut daffodils in a yellow or orange vase and like a place of honor in your bathroom. I think bonus points if it's able to be on a windowsill. And every time you bathe or shower that week, fill the cup of one flower and pour it over your head. And then once you're done getting ready for the day, take that flower that you use outside and lay it in your garden in the sun. And then you'll do that every day for a full week. I would also suggest including some really great self-care afterwards. So like following that ritual with like an herbal body oil, I think would be the perfect way to give yourself some extra love here. I would recommend like an infused jojoba or almond oil with something like calendula because calendula is not only great for your skin, but it's going to bring in some really good, like solar energy and that really pretty, like yellow color that doesn't stain your skin. So when you're doing this and you're doing like your body oiling, you want to focus on areas with lymph nodes to also help keep things circulating. Um, those of you that have breasts, most people massage them too. It might feel silly if you're not used to it, but there are actually a lot of really fantastic health benefits to breast massage. Plus it's a really great way to connect to your own body in like a non-sexual way, which I think is something that can also be really beneficial if you're feeling dissociative and having like really bad anxiety and like inner turmoil, getting connected to your body, I think is really helpful. So um, that's that. I mean, that's really all I have for this lovely, hopeful little flower. There's not a lot of medicinal history, but I also wanted to keep it a little shorter on this one because I knew funeral magic was going to be huge. Um, so my sources today were almanac.com, Wikipedia, flyingthehedge.com, Cunningham's Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, The Green Witch Oracle by Cheryl and Darcy, and having daffodils around. I have a friend who grows daffodils like every spring. Her family always has them and she brings them by like every year. So, woo. Love that. And I love the, the narcissist tie-in with yeah. that, um, genus name. And okay, so you guys, speaking of narcissists, we are going to talk about narcissists. So this is kind of the one where it's like a little bit of a trigger warning for sexual assault. Uh, and there's a few things to unpack before we really dive in. And so firstly, a lot of you will already be aware, but this is one of those times where we're covering a mythological figure rather than a proper deity. Yeah. So to those who didn't know the story of narcissists uh, in passing already. You know, this is not one of those uh, where it's a proper deity. Also, this ranks highly on my list of ancient characters exhibiting fuckboy behavior. Oh, yeah. Big fuckboy energy. Uh, and it might even be the number number one. Um, but this man, Narcissus, was the number one himbo of ancient Greece. <laughs> And I, I have to say, I love himbo. The term himbo truly delights me. I'm sorry, continue. Oh yeah, so he, so he was he was the real six three himbo, uh, and the most eligible twink in the Peloponnese. So, in all versions of the myth, Narcissus is a heroic type who fails to overcome his own fate. But there are alternate tellings where Narcissus is the love child of Selene and Endymion. And we thankfully actually already have that story, that charming love story, uh, wonderfully laid out in a different episode. So you can check that out. But a lot of times, in a lot of tellings, he is the rape baby of the river spirit Cephasus and the water nymph Liriope. And I think we have to give some consideration to both of the alternate origin stories because 
as we all know, Endymion was an old school hottie and Celine is the fucking moon. So of course they would have an unnaturally beautiful baby. And I'm not saying this in the context of real life, but I think in the context of narrative storytelling, having Narcissus be a rape baby does somewhat foreshadow his ill fates. Um, So, you know, I think you can kind of see how it would go both ways. But regardless of how we got there, we have a situation where there's a beautiful man whose good looks are legendary and who even the gods and spirits have taken note of. And like, um, we've all met this asshole. We, we have. Um, but circling back around, uh, so Ovid's version, there's a dark omen looming, looming over his head, which he might not even be aware of, because he's such a himbo, and you'll see why later on. But so Liriope, the naiad mother, gives birth to the handsomest baby ever, trademark, in Thespiae, which, you know, side note here, the amount of drama in this story, it's really no surprise that Narcissus is an OG thespian. I'm, of course, kidding, because I know who Thespis is, but he is from Thespiae, so you you remember our thespians do it on stage t-shirt that got banned in high school oh yeah anyway yeah we're 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 funny um we're funny people we've always been this funny guys we've always been this funny (laughs) but basically it's a pretty big deal and obviously such an attractive baby is very auspicious so they they go to a seer called teresius and they want to learn the baby's fate And she's like, it's all good. He's got the potential to have a long and successful life. But there's just this one thing. Under no circumstances is Narcissus to ever discover himself. Because it will be his undoing. Um, And, you know, the mom is like, that's kind of cryptic. But we'll see what we can do to at least get this beautiful man-child to adulthood. (laughs) Um, so we come back to the story and Narcissus is a full-grown man. And here I do think it's important to imagine the handsomest man you can think of. I'm thinking of Jamie Dornan, um, you know, another little poll for Instagram. Um, who would you cast as Narcissus? Alexander Skarsgård. Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, but he is a heartbreaker fuck boy of the highest caliber and he has turned down every reasonable and extravagant offer of courtship from all the hottest dudes and ladies he's been proposed to you know he's got a line out of his door and but in his dumb himbo heart he has a persistent feeling that he can and will do better (laughs) And he's really just, like, living his jar of hearts fantasy. And, you know, we really hope it's enjoyable because he's about to get majorly outed for being a himbo. And also, spoiler, he's going to die. But before we go there, I have to talk to you a little bit about Echo. Echo, Echo, Echo. So we have to do this because the rest of the story is not going to make sense. So here's the Cliff Notes version. Echo was a mountain nymph 
who was beautiful, but a bit of a chatterbox and honestly a bit of a gossip. And in an unfortunate series of events, she gets caught up in a practical joke that Venus is playing on Juno, uh, which honestly seems innocent enough to me, uh, considering what the uh, outcome is. But basically, they made Juno believe through Echo's reputation as having the juiciest goss in town that Jupiter was in town and hadn't told her. Um, and so she feels like she's been made a fool of, which, you know, she's the mother of the gods and she's like the first lady of the gods. So suffice to say she's furious and she takes Echo's voice away. And so now all Echo can say is the last few words of whatever was just said to her. And so she leaves, Echo leaves, um, and hides herself away and starts kind of wandering around in the woods where we kind of rejoin the story. And so Narcissus has grown into this like gorgeous hero slash adventurer. And he's on the hunt with his friends. And they get separated in the middle of the woods and Narcissus realizes he's being followed. So in the meantime, Echo has found a new reason to live because she saw this stunningly gorgeous Narcissus wandering through her woods. And she's been creeping the whole time following this hunting party. And of course, once he gets separated, she's trying to like make her move. And it plays out like a comedic bit, but it's also like very sad. Uh, so Narcissus is like, he knows he's being followed and he's like, who's there? And Echo's like, who's there? And Narcissus is like, come to me. And Echo's like, come to me. Uh, and then Narcissus is like, you really need to cut it out and head in this direction. We must come together. And Echo's like, come together, exclamation point. <laughs> uh, because she's like, oh, obviously he's in love. Um, and so for some reason, she's like taken this as a confession of his love. And she comes out and like throws herself at him in a romantic and or sexual way, which would probably have worked on like nearly any blooded Greek man of the age, but not Narcissus. Um, he spurns her advance and is like, I die where I stand before I let you enjoy my body. To which Echo replied, enjoy my body? Question mark? <laughs> um, and so she, she's embarrassed. She runs away crying in shame, which really sting of unrequited love is central to this story and it's I think universal and like really my heart goes out to her in this situation and it's in this state that she sort of starts like haunting misty valleys and just getting really weird and sad with it and so enter nemesis so nemesis as we know is the goddess of revenge and she was so moved by Echo's plight, and really aren't we all? 
um, that she sets into motion an insidious scheme. So she is well aware of the prophecy about Narcissus and cooks up something really special just for him. So he's parched. He's on a different hunting trip uh, because that's like his hobby. And he's so thirsty. And Mimesis tricks him through some cunning means to head into the woods to a pool for a drink. Except this particular pool is, of course, enchanted for maximum reflectivity because Narcissus is about to discover himself. (laughs) And that's the one thing he can't do, right? And it works. Like hook, line, and sinker, it works, honey. He's in love. He's never seen anyone so beautiful as this man in the pool. And it drives him mad because he can't reach through the reflection to the other side. And all he can do is just stare into the water for the rest of his days. And he can't be moved to leave for food or to protect his body with shelter. All he can do is like stare at this dream boat in the water which is exactly as planned, but this isn't the sweet revenge that leads to a happy ending for our leading lady, Echo. So Narcissus is consumed by this fire of passion and eventually gets so worked up that he melts like human Velveeta. (laughs) And the skid mark that used to be Narcissus eventually grows into the very first cluster of flowers that obviously bear his name and have the quality of sort of the flowers drooping down, which you do sometimes see with daffodils, you know, kind of drooping down, looking like gazing into the reflection, uh, which is also part of that that naming convention, but Echo is not thrilled with this outcome. So she's watched her himbo man crush like waste away into a cluster of flowers basically. And she can't talk. And it's really just the cherry on top of her shit sandwich. So she very dramatically like throws herself down by this reflecting pool and chooses to waste away herself but being a, 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 a nymph, she's semi-immortal. And so her body wastes away and only what's left of her voice remains, uh, repeating after you if you yell in the mountains. Uh, we do have to remember that Echo was a mountain nymph, which is why you get more echoes in the mountains. Um, and that's the end, except now we have to talk about how Narcissus became a gay icon, because I actually think this is pretty funny. Um, and it is not because of the phenomenon of boyfriend twins in the gay community, which does have just a tinge of narcissism in it. But actually, there was a version from one of Ovid's contemporaries where Narcissus turns away a potential male lover instead of Echo, and for some reason he gives this potential male lover a sword as like a consolation prize. Um, So this suitor kills himself, and his dying wish is that Narcissus learns his lesson about vanity, 
and all of that. And, and that's what sets the rest of the myth into motion with the pool and the reflection and all of that. But actually what I'm talking about is all of the very, very homoerotic narcissist-based art from like the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, especially England. And, you know, like if you look at even like Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, very much has like some of the archetypes of the narcissist story in it. And seemingly the answer is very simple and dare I say a little shallow, but I think it's it's because you're allowed to paint a hot naked boy on all fours as long as he's looking down into water because it's mythology. Like, geez, you guys, get your mind out of the gutter. This hot twink spreading his cheeks is narcissus. Uh, <laughs> don't um, be gross. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, really, the basest human instinct, sex. Right. Um, so we see you, horny Victorians. Um, On the Dorian Gray note, I do just have to plug, I know I talked about Penny Dreadful last week, but like Reeve Carney as Dorian Gray is like another twink icon. So many, so many twink icons in this episode. Yeah, truly. And that's, that's really the end, but I thought sort of as like a mini QWP, I think overusing the term narcissist to describe people who are merely conceited um, narcissistic personality disorder is a real thing with diagnostic criteria and a real who's who list of comorbidities. And that being said, maybe working on your vocabulary lessons before, like, let's say if you're doing astrology shit posting and you call like Leo's and Libra's narcissists in your like shitty copy pasta astrology posts really isn't the way to go with that. Uh, and you do see it a lot. Okay, great, thanks. Yeah, being an asshole doesn't make you a narcissist. It also doesn't make you mentally ill. Sometimes it just makes you an asshole. But Sometimes, sometimes people are just assholes. Yeah, I mean, on that note, Libras. So today when I was, uh, not today, but yesterday when I was getting ready for today's episode, I was I had one of those moments where I was like looking at the random number generator, but I was like, no, nah, man, this is for Libra. You know, sometimes it's just like, yeah. this one's for you. And I wanted to show you all, this is very appropriate. I'm using my new tarot deck from the Macabre Tarot, but also like, <laughs> that's the sound effect when you open the I box. I love the cre creaky casket noise. Isn't it great? Um, so today, my Libra darlings, I felt like this one was for you. This is, again, the first one I've done for the podcast with this new deck, and it's like extra special. And knowing friend of the podcast, who is a Libra, we've got our wonderful Eve. Um, for you today, I've drawn the Nightmare of Daggers. And when I say talking about Eve. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Isn't this like the biggest Eve energy, like in a card? Like it really is, um, you know, like a big titty demon. Yeah, a big titty, like hot demon. Yeah, that's Eve. So <laughs> this card, the Nightmare of Daggers, corresponds to the Knight of Swords in traditional decks. And this card is showing me 
that you have like a goal or an accomplishment in your crosshairs. And like right now you have this ability to tap into some like intense focus and really aggressively go after what it is, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Like this card is a green light. It's saying, don't get distracted or bogged down by other things that are trying to distract you. You beautiful Libra people. You can do this. The universe has your back. Like let go of that, like dogged intensity that you're able to go after whatever this to do is. So you will accomplish it. Just don't like let yourself get sidetracked. And, um, yeah, so that's all for the Eve card. Well, I, I love that for Libra. Um, I do feel that kind of energy in the air uh, for, for my sister sign. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I, I am friends with a couple of Libras, um, like moths to a flame, you know. But okay, Literally. so we're, we're here at the bitter end, and we did forget to do our asks. So just really quickly... You can rate us on Spotify, which is great. So go ahead and give us five stars there or on Apple Podcasts, reviews. Love it. Like, please send a review. Um, screenshot it while you're listening and Nick will do a tarot poll for you. Yeah, you bitches need to take me up on that. Um, yeah. I'm bored. I, I like really want to do it too. So, um, but okay. And then also... If you are not aware, we do have a Patreon where you can see our beautiful smiling faces while you are listening to the episode and um, also get a bunch of goodies. You can get herbal grimoire from Shannon. You can get a monthly tarot scope from me. We're doing monthly coven meetings. It's... It's the bonus content you need in your life. And the next monthly coven meeting is going to be a group ritual this Saturday, January 22nd. So if you want to join in time to do a group ritual with us, this is the week. This is the time. Um, But what do we say to all of the dead narcissistic bitches? Uh, To all of you dead narcissistic big titty demon bitches. Blessed be bitches. Blessed be, you dead bitches. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye now. Jeez, you guys, get your mind out of the gutter. This hot twink spreading his cheeks is narcissist.